listeners, and welcome to the Sleep Research Society podcast, a podcast purpose to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian research. My name is Jesse Cook, and I am your host for today's episode. It is critical to emphasize that the views expressed across the SRS podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken or utilized as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. And listeners, I am eager to dive into the content of today's episode, which focuses on something that we all experience from time to time, sleep loss. Based on a CDC report, it has been estimated that 70% of the general population experience at least one night of sleep of insufficient duration per month. Ultimately, sleep loss seems inevitable and universal, largely due to the demands of our day-to-day lives that leave us unable to prioritize sleep of sufficient duration consistently. However, the consequences of sleep loss, whether it be cognitively, emotionally, or physically, seemingly vary significantly between humans. Some people are prominently affected, whereas others are seemingly able to function without noticeable disturbance. Given this, a key question arises. What makes people more or less susceptible to the deleterious effects of sleep loss? Well, today's episode is principally focused on this question, and I am grateful to digitally sit down with Dr. Olga Galli as we discussed the recent publication in Sleep entitled Predictors of Inter-Individual Differences in Vulnerability to Neurobehavioral Consequences of Chronic Partial Sleep Restriction. Before diving into our discussion, here is a brief background on Dr. Olga Galley. Dr. Galley completed her undergraduate degree in psychology at Harvard University before pursuing her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. During her time training at the University of Pennsylvania, she was primarily mentored by Dr. David Dingus. She participated in a multitude of research projects investigating the neurobehavioral consequences of sleep loss and biomarkers of resilience. Upon matriculation, Dr. Galley completed a year-long clinical internship through the South Texas Veterans Healthcare System before a postdoctoral fellowship through the New Jersey VA Healthcare System. Presently, Dr. Galley serves as a medical science liaison in the field of neuroscience for Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Lastly, Dr. Galley has a long-standing history of involvement with the SRS, dating back to 2014. Over that period, she has committed five-plus years of service to the SRS that included positions on the Communications Committee, Trainee Education and Advisory Committee, and Board of Directors while acting as the trainee member at large from 2019 to 2020. So, without further ado... Let's dive into my discussion with Dr. Olga Galley, unpacking their recent publication aimed at identifying predictors of vulnerability to the neurobehavioral consequences of chronic partial sleep restriction. And listeners, welcome to the interview portion of today's episode. Uh, I have the pleasure of digitally sitting down with Dr. Olga Galley. Dr. Olga Galley, Welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks, Jesse. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to do this. Absolutely. And 
Uh, truly my pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on uh, It's and taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you got a lot on your plate these days, but thank you so much for joining us. Uh, truly our pleasure. Of course. And before we dive in today, I just wanted to say I think it's important to note that although I am an employee of Jazz Pharmaceuticals these days, the views that I shared today are entirely my own, and all of the work that we'll be discussing was completed prior to my time at Jazz. Before we do, you know, get into the the nitty gritties here, Olga, I just I just want to know how was your sleep last night? It was pretty good. Thanks for asking. I think I'm one of those people that can sleep on demand, so it usually tends to go pretty well. Uh, but feeling good, rested, and eager to dive right in today. Outstanding. And that's great to hear because I know our theme today is trying to understand why people are resilient or vulnerable to sleep loss. But obviously, it should be a priority to uh, avoid sleep loss if we can. Uh, so I'm glad to hear that we're both operating at uh, nearly full capacity today. Um, now, Dr. Galley, I have given the listeners a relatively formal introduction to your background, but I still believe it would be useful for them to hear a little bit more about yourself. So let's start with just a couple orientation questions. Um, how about we start with, you know, can you please tell us about kind of your journey to sleep and circadian research? Absolutely. Thanks, Jesse. I think it's, I think the first thing that comes to mind is that I feel like I really stumbled upon this field and then just fell in love with it. Um, after college, I think like many new graduates, I was looking for a job um, and didn't have anything specific in mind, but I knew that I really enjoyed my classes in psychology and experimental design. So I was thinking about getting more hands-on research experience. Um, and that summer, I was actually offered a research assistant position at McLean Hospital working with Scott Kilgore, who's now at Arizona. Um, and he had just received DARPA funding to study the neurobehavioral basis of resilience to sleep loss and basically see whether he can use multimodal neuroimaging to, to predict in advance who's going to be vulnerable or resilient when you expose them to total sleep deprivation. Um, which is something that I hadn't been exposed to before and hadn't really given much thought to just because sleep is, is something that we all do, but don't really think about. Um, so coming into that lab at that particular moment when he just got that funding meant that I was involved in everything from study design and, and piloting to setting up the experimental rooms to actually running the overnight sleep deprivation sessions and collecting and analyzing all of this data. Um, so it was definitely challenging, but it was so much fun. And at the same time, you know, not only did I have great coworkers, but I had a really excellent mentor. Um, so Scott Kilgore, you know, through teaching and sharing his own experience with the military, he really highlighted the importance of sleep and the impact that sleep loss can have on cognitive performance and, and our judgment and emotional and psychological health. And I think the fact that it still wasn't possible to identify individuals who would do well or, or do poorly when exposed to sleep loss um, was like this big puzzle or this mystery that I felt like was just waiting to be solved. You know, if, if we can only do the right research, we would be able to answer that question. Um, so I, I really wanted to continue that line of work. And in that first year with his support, I actually got to go to my first sleep conference in 2013. Um, and at that point, I, I was hooked. I knew I wanted to continue doing that research. 
And in my mind, there was really just one place to do that. You know, I decided I was going to go to UPenn and I was going to work with Dr. David Dindris, who I think is safe to say sort of led the way in that line of research for a long time. Um, so with some help, I was actually able to track him down at that conference and talk my way into getting another meeting and a tour of the lab and, you know, eventually enroll in the clinical psychology program the following fall. Um, and since then, there's just been no question that this is what I wanted to be doing. And I think it was just a lot of luck to not only stumble upon this, this field, but also to have the guidance and support of really fantastic mentors along the way, um, as well as the freedom to, to pursue my own questions in, in this larger topic of sleep loss. Fascinating and fantastic. And honestly, one of the things that I love about this field is the unique combination of researchers and clinicians and the journeys that they've taken to get here. And then many times I hear kind of similar themes to what you just unpacked, where it's it's almost serendipitous that we start off somewhere else and then we realize like, wait a minute, the sleep thing, we all do it. Why? And but And nobody tells us how to do it when to do it. We're not instructed that. And we were all kind of fascinated at some point. I, have, I had a very similar jumping off point at the University of Arizona when I was in Dr. Bootson's um, sleep and sleep disorders class. So I, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. And um, I think it's just, you know, you've, you've done a remarkable work to this point. And uh, nowadays, you do find yourself outside of uh, kind of the academy, correct? Yes. Yeah, so it it's been a different journey, I think, for me. I started in academia, and then I incorporated clinical work through my graduate training, and then continued on to a clinical internship at a VA hospital. And then I, I did start a clinical postdoctoral fellowship also, um, but I found that all of the full-time clinical work really moved me further away from the research that I wanted to be doing. Um, but sort of immersing myself full-time in the academic realm didn't feel quite right either. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, sort of serendipitously, I, I discovered that there were other opportunities out there um, that would allow me to sort of keep a, a pulse, both on the clinical world as well as the academic world. Um, so I did land in industry. I now work for Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Uh, as a medical science liaison. So I, it really allows me to stay entrenched in in the research that's coming out of the sleep field, but also still be informed on the clinical impact that this research is doing, which it has been really rewarding and really satisfying um, and truly allows me to have an idea of what's going on in different realms of sleep research too. So instead of having a deeper dive in my own topic, um, having more broad exposure to what everybody else is doing, that's been really interesting to me and, and being able to keep up with that. Because I think you, you've probably noticed this as well. The sleep field is both large and small. It truly feels like a, a family, um, a sleep family. And I, I'm just so thrilled to continue to be a part of that, uh, even though my role has changed. Outstanding. I couldn't agree more. It feels just like an awesome family. And uh, I can't wait for us to reunite at some point in the future. And now, uh, Dr. Galley, if I may, I have a hard hitting question for you. So brace yourself. Um, when you're not advancing the frontier of sleep and circadian research, 
uh, case in point, this awesome paper that we'll eventually talk about. What do you actually do in your spare time? So I used to try to travel a bit more. Um, the pandemics made that a bit more challenging, although I will say I did get to go to the uh, Big Bend National Park in Texas during the pandemic, which was great because it was very isolated. Um, but in the last 10 years, I've actually been fostering through animal shelters, uh, mostly cats. So we've had over 50 cats come through our home at one point or another um, on their way to loving adopt adoptive homes. Uh, and in early quarantine, about two years ago, we took in some puppies for the first time. So you can imagine what that does in a small apartment um, under quarantine. And I also get to got to take in a five day old kitten who needed round the clock care with, with you know bottle feeding and all of that. So that's definitely another challenge, but you know, oh so rewarding. And that kitten is now sleeping lazily on my desk. Um, so yeah, looking forward to getting back to doing that soon. Oh, those cats, they're uh they're crepuscular creatures, huh? Um, but that's probably a conversation for a different day. Uh, as I mentioned to the listeners in the introduction, you know today's episode focuses specifically on uh, one of your recent investigations that you and your colleagues published in the journal Sleep. Um, it's entitled "Predictors of Interindividual Differences in Vulnerability to Neurobehavioral Consequences of Chronic Partial Sleep Loss." Um, and just so we're kind of on the same page here. We've decided to organize our time here today, Dr. Galley, into kind of three parts where we're going to first just kind of take a 3,000-foot view of the investigation, and then we'll dive into the details a little bit more. And, and lastly, we'll come up for air uh, to discuss some implications, next steps, and some future research that could be done downstream. So to open up this conversation on this amazing paper, let's let's just take a 3,000-foot view. Um, what was kind of the impetus for this research. I know you kind of unpacked that your journey through sleep led you to this mystery of why are some people vulner vulnerable or resilient? Um, is there anything kind of beyond that, that kind of led you other studies that led you to kind of this investigation as it is? I think um, for this particular investigation, I think the impetus was a little bit more practical for me. Uh, when I was reviewing the research you know, it, it's very clear that we know a lot about the consequences of sleep loss and, and its real world impact. And, you know, there's data showing that individuals respond the same way when exposed to sleep loss multiple times, but the response varies between individuals. Some seem to handle it much better than others. Um, and to me, it seemed that if we can identify ahead of time how somebody would respond, it might be possible to reduce the risks of some of these catastrophic consequences in sensitive jobs. And as I started looking deeper into what might predispose somebody to be more or less vulnerable to sleep loss, there was a number of hypotheses and some interesting findings in the literature, um, but I found that they were done in relatively smaller studies and focused on one or two potential factors at a time. Uh, so one study might find something significant, but another would fail to replicate it. And you know they may have different protocols or they may use different measures. And so in my mind, there was sort of no conclusive evidence to support any one given variable. Um, but as I was getting ready to start my own program of research, I couldn't find a reference to sort of back up this, you know, this belief that, that nothing is, is really significant 
when we're thinking about this. And I decided why not just make one, um, right? So I would write this paper that would that would show that there is no significant predictive variable. And then I would be able to use that as my own reference um, in whatever work I needed to do later on. And one of the benefits of working in the Dingus lab is this access to just an enormous trove of data that spans several decades. Uh, and so it's not just comprehensive, but it's also very consistent. They use the same study protocol in hundreds of participants. And when I looked through those, I realized that it would let me examine sort of dozens of these variables all at once in a really large sample. And every single individual would have gone through the exact same study protocol, at least for a portion of that study. So it, it would allow me to pool all of this data together. And so Dr. Dundrist and I decided that I would go through and see what are all of the overlapping variables from several studies and, and merge them into the single database that would then allow me to look at factors that were previously thought to be associated. Um, and then some others that maybe hadn't been looked at as closely. So I think it, it, it's not um, as romantic of an idea. I think it came from just the practicality of needing a reference or a citation. Um, but ultimately, it, it turned out to be something pretty great. Yeah, well said. Sometimes, you know, we need to do our own research for our future research, right? But exactly. um, I, I love the recognition of the translation of these findings and this kind of line of inquiry to real world application, whether it's pilots or surgeons, these, these jobs, military personnel, where you need to be extremely vigilant, uh, despite extremely demanding uh, conditions that may leave you vulnerable or experiencing sleep loss. The ability to predict those individuals that will succeed or struggle, I think, is really important to reducing safety issues and improving kind of the effectiveness of those jobs. So I think it's a critically important line of work for sure. And um, the application is is clearly tangible. Uh, you touched a little bit upon the methodology, and, and I believe you were able to pull together three different studies, which is awesome. And it led to a pretty strong sample size, about 306 individuals, if I remember correctly. Um, just kind of broadly speaking, uh, what was kind of the, the shared paradigm between these studies? Absolutely. So you're right. These were three much larger studies. Um, but the first portion of the study Everybody who came in uh, was randomized to either normal sleep conditions where they would get 10 hours of sleep in bed, or they would be randomized to be uh, sleep restricted. So what would happen is those individuals who were in the sleep restricted condition, they would be limited to just four hours time in bed for five consecutive nights. Um, and so the goal was to look at the effect of the cumulative effect of this gradual sleep loss or sleep restriction, as opposed to the total sleep deprivation that we've seen in some other experiments. Very cool. And so clearly, you know, looking at this, the, the outcome variable you were most interested in here was change in somebody's performance on the psychomotor vigilance task. Uh, you know, I think some of our listeners are probably familiar with the psychomotor vigilance task or the PVT, but just briefly, Olga, what is the PVT? Yeah, so this is an established measure that's used very commonly in studies like this, 
what it looks at is just simple sustained attention. So can somebody pay attention for a set period of time and then react quickly? So it basically has subjects pay attention to a computer screen. And then when they see a stimulus that happens anywhere between two and 10 seconds, they have to press a button and as quickly as accurately as possible. And there's a couple of outcomes that we look at. So we can look at the number of lapses, which are response times longer than 500 milliseconds. So we would basically say that's a lapse of attention. We can also look at false starts where they might respond when there wasn't a stimulus present or you know, errors where they might press the wrong key. We can look at their reaction times in general, um, as well as the slowest and the fastest reaction times. Um, but for us, what we were interested in is this number of lapses on the PBT, these failures of attention, um, because that's what's been used most often in the literature. So we wanted to stick with that um, and basically see how does that number change as individuals go through sleep restriction? You know, at baseline, we may see no lapses at all, or we may see one or two, but then by the end of those five nights of sleep restriction, uh, individuals may vary. Some will continue to show, you know, just zero to two lapses, in which case their difference in performance would be minimal. And some may have over 100, uh, which is very significant and would sort of demonstrate the significant vulnerability to sleep loss over time. Well said. And and to my knowledge, that, that number of lapses is a really sticky uh, measurement in, in the PVT. We use it in our lab uh, and detecting kind of sleepiness in some ways or a kind of dimensional component of sleepiness, which is kind of the inattentive uh, consequence, if you will. Um, and, you know, you looked at a lot of different predictor variables of what may lead to changes in these number of lapses. Um, what did you find? In general, we, we found that a lot of those variables really didn't matter. Um, you know, we looked at 18 other measures of neurobehavioral performance, um, things like personality traits, uh, subjective reports of how sleepy individuals were feeling. And we also looked at baseline factors, you know, things like their BMI, their age, their, their sex or their race. Um, we really didn't find anything that was very significant. The only things that were associated with the change in PVT performance over sleep restriction was how well they did on the PVT when they first came into the lab. So basically when they were rested, uh, what their baseline performance was. Um, but interestingly, we also found that how long they were able to stay awake on the MWT, so this is the maintenance of wakefulness test, at baseline, also while rested, was associated with how well they would do later on on the PVT. So for those individuals that really couldn't stay awake for the entire 30 minutes of the maintenance of wakefulness test, even though they were fully rested, they were significantly more likely to be vulnerable to the effects of sleep restriction as measured by the PVT. Interesting. Uh, it was just so surprising to me that only that baseline performance and then performance on the MWT came through. And I think that led, as we move into the kind of deeper elements here, your team to kind of conclude that this seems to be an innate trait. Uh, is that is that fair to say? I think so. Definitely, from my perspective, I, I would think this is something that is innate to the individual. 
Um, and this has been proposed by several other researchers before us. This is certainly not new um, to this study. But, you know, there have been studies that looked at vulnerability to sleep loss across multiple exposures. So individuals would go through total sleep deprivation or sleep restriction or both, um, either days or even years apart in some instances. And what they found is that although there's differences between individuals in how well they, they hold up, the individuals themselves are very consistent and very stable in how they perform across these different exposures. So I think in my mind, if this is something that can benefit from experience or potentially you can train for, those that go through these exposures multiple times, I would expect they would be better off. They're sort of prepared, they know what to expect, but we still see that you know, if they're vulnerable that first time, they're gonna continue to be vulnerable no matter how many times they go through this protocol. Um, which to me that that suggests it's closer to something that is innate rather than something that could that somebody can prepare for. Yeah, it's so interesting because I I know you come from a very similar school of thought to me with our psychological training background and just the notion of human plasticity. Uh, and although I do believe in relatively stable characteristics, this one to me does seem to be somewhat modifiable or untrainable. Um, and I think we'll talk about that in a second here. But I was really surprised that personality characteristics did not emerge as a significant predictor um, of, of change in the, the PVT performance. And um, I'm not too familiar with the inventory you used, but it, it really focuses on the personality traits of neuroticism, extroversion, psychoticism, and uh, it has a kind of validity scale, right? The lie detective uh, desirability. And I like that you included that as a predictor because I think that's an interesting component there. But uh, strange that nothing emerged there. I thought potentially kind of extroversion and neuroticism would, would play a role. If you look at kind of the big five traits, there's uh, another uh, personality component called conscientiousness. And it's basically a person's tendency to control impulses and act responsibly and productively. So I think it's kind of a serves a regulatory role. And oftentimes grit is a component that's lumped into conscientiousness. And that's characterized as one's kind of steady persistence towards a goal, despite kind of inhibitors, things like that. And to me, that kind of maps on to what you're trying to capture here was somebody's resiliency, right? Somebody's grittiness. Do you think potentially utilizing different measures of personality could have uh, unearthed uh, different results here? I think that's definitely an interesting question, especially when you are thinking about this grit or tendency to be in control of your behavior and your response to situations. I think that's definitely something worth taking a look at. Um, but I also think it's a little bit different from this laboratory environment that we set up for these experiments. Um, there has been research, you know, implicating personality factors and vulnerability or resilience in smaller studies. And in those studies, they did manipulate the environment. So they might have a socially enriched environment and then see how individuals of different personalities may do um, under those conditions. And they did find some significant differences. But I think for our study, we've removed all of that purposefully. We wanted to see sort of when left to their own devices, what these individuals would be capable of on this very 
boring task. You know, if you've ever done the PVT, um, it, it can probably be used as torture if you just extend the duration of the test. Um, and so when thinking about some of these other personality traits that you've mentioned, like grit and the sort of motivation and persistence and resilience, to me, that speaks to persevering for a goal that's important for you. And when I think about these individuals in our study protocols, you know, it's it's hard for me to believe that completing the PVT well is important enough for them to for some of these factors to come into play. So, you know, I think that it's an interesting question and we should certainly look into it. Um, but it sort of gets messy because you have to start thinking about motivation and, you know, how meaningful is this measure to them? Because if we go out in the field and we think about something like grit influencing somebody's ability to remain alert and remain watchful if they're watching for, you know, a missile defense system or if they're an astronaut and they need to be awake to complete a, a mission, you know, that that may play a much bigger role than somebody just sitting in the lab and pressing the space button on a computer um, for 10 minutes. So I think we have to think about um, both the measures that we're using, but also the things that we're asking our participants to do. That's extremely brilliant. And I'm just thinking about a slight alteration to your paradigm here that I'm sure you've thought about before, where if you can um, find a motivational component, say you tell participants that if you keep the number of lapses under a certain amount, you receive X amount of dollars. And maybe you don't tell them the number of lapses, but you you know, have that motivational urge. Perhaps then these types of um, characteristics or features would predict the outcomes at that point. Uh, so I completely understand that. And I, I love the thinking. And, you know, while we're talking about personality and psychological components, one thing I was thinking about is um, it's no surprise that our beliefs uh, have strong influence on our behaviors. We see that a lot in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, where we challenge dysfunctional beliefs about sleep. And, you know, I, all studies are not able to measure everything or include everything. And you had to work with the data that was with, available. Uh, but do you think somebody's belief about their identity to resiliency or vulnerability to sleep loss? You know, if if somebody has shouldered sleep loss so often that they've developed a belief that they are someone that can be resilient to it, do you think that in itself may have some impact on the results that you observed? Yeah, that's definitely an interesting topic to think about. Um, I know that when we think about individuals' perception and sort of belief on how well they're doing under sleep loss, on some of these subjective measures, when we ask them how sleepy or how fatigued they are, we see that they plateau and they sort of think that they're doing okay a couple of days into it. Um, but we do know that their performance continues to um, disintegrate. You know, they, they continue to accumulate these deficits, even though they believe that subjectively they're doing okay. Um, but the question of you know, do they believe that they're doing well or that they're coping or that they're resilient or vulnerable is definitely an interesting one. And, and before I left academia, we actually had a smaller study going where I actually asked subjects, you know, how well do you think you're going to do on this PVT? And then they would do the PVT. Um, 
And if you've ever done it, you know that they do see, they get feedback on their performance. So they see their response times up on the screen with each reaction. So after the task, I would also ask them, you know, on average, what do you think your reaction time was? How well did you do? Um, and so my, my goal really was to look at whether they would be accurate in thinking about how well they actually did and whether their anticipation of how well they're going to do would, would also be associated with their later performance. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to finish that before I, I moved on to other things, but that data is available somewhere. So, you know, if you're interested, I would reach out maybe to Dr. Dengis or whoever's at Penn at the moment um, and think about taking a look at that because I think that's a great question. Well, I'll be sending over an email shortly after we conclude today's episode. Um, but I, I can't let you go before talking about this key piece from the paper that I found so remarkable. It's it's right at the back end, uh, but I think it's a really fascinating area that needs more exploration. And uh, it's based on this concept of a modulatory drive, basically a mechanism, but it takes and it weighs the inputs from the internal and external environments to decide whether to initiate or terminate sleep is, I believe, how you defined it in your paper. Um, can you talk a little bit about the modulatory drive? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was really shocked that I hadn't heard about this or toward, until towards the end of my graduate career, um, because usually what we think about are these homeostatic and circadian systems working opposite of one another. But this alternative view is thinking about another system that balances the need of those two and sort of forms a larger mechanism. Um, there's a great figure that I used in my dissertation that visualizes the system, and it's on the Sleep and General Medicine website that's run by Dr. Guilhem uh, Paramardi in France. And it has a circadian pendulum on one side, and that's influenced by the time of day or genetic predisposition and our zeitgebers. So, you know, light exposure and meal times and activity levels. And on the other side, it has a homeostatic pendulum. Uh, so it has, you know, whether you're a long or a short sleeper and how much sleep you've gotten the night before. But between these two, there's, there's sort of this fulcrum and it has inertia and an interaction of the two pendulums that reflects the flexibility of the system or an individual uh, to adapt to the shifting demands of these two different systems. And so depending on the circumstances, the weights within the pendulums themselves shift, but also um, it can be seen as a double pendulum mechanism. And so when the balance is broken in one or both of these systems, it creates a chaotic movement, which those authors uh, suggest is inherently mathematically unpredictable, uh, which may or may not be correct. Uh, but I think it's an interesting idea, this, this sort of idea of, of an integrator in the middle, this fulcrum between these two pendulums that constantly gets input from internal and external environments, and then weighs the demands on the system and makes a decision on whether or not to promote wake or sleep in that particular moment. Beautifully said. And I I just, it makes so much sense to me. Uh, I know in our pre-show, we were discussing kind of the evolutionary utility of this. And I always like to think about biology from those terms. And it, it just makes, it seems so adaptive to have some sort of technique to recognize that it's 
time for sleep externally and that internally we need the sleep, but it may not be the appropriate time if per se I'm being chased by a lion or something like that. And I really need to ramp up my wakefulness despite the fact that it's time for sleep, um, both internally and externally. So I think that's a remarkable um, theoretical kind of conceptualization. I, I do think further work is is necessary. There's this the proposed concept, you'll probably have a better understanding of the, the integrator neuron. Is that something that's actually been identified or is that still kind of more theoretical at this point? So it is more theoretical at this point. It's not a singular neuron like we would think about as existing in the brain. It's more of a, of the system that's associated maybe with hypocretin or the hypothalamus that integrates this information from multiple and often conflicting variables and then makes that decision. You know, do I fire up and wake up the animal so they can run away or do I stay silent and let them sleep in? Um, and so that's been proposed um, to have a threshold function for, for this integrator that once it surpasses a certain threshold, it'll trigger a global onset of non-REM sleep when there are enough domains engaged in local sleep throughout the brain. And in my mind, you know, there's this question of, are there inter-individual inter differences in how sensitive this neuron is and, and how it weighs the different inputs, perhaps how long it takes for it to, to integrate those inputs and make a decision. Um, and then that could potentially account for these differences in vulnerability. Because I think you're right, we, we need this evolutionary mechanism to survive. And there is animal research that implicates both hypocretin and dopamine and arousal and motivation. And, you know, they do suggest that internal and external stressors, so predators, but also hunger and maybe very limited mating opportunities, they can promote wakefulness. Um, even if both your homeostatic system and circadian system are both sort of screaming for sleep, if there's enough motivation to stay awake, there, there is a drive that's in place um, that can facilitate that. And there is some research looking at motivation, um, you know, from the 1990s. There have been studies that shown individuals can induce or delay their sleep depending on the task instructions. So for somebody doing the multiple sleep latency tests where they're asked to fall asleep as quickly as possible, they can do that. And then if next you ask them to stay awake as long as possible on the maintenance of wakefulness test, they can do that too. Uh, whereas some individuals are not gonna be able to. Um, and there's also evidence, you know, that those with untreated sleep apnea and a history of car accidents, because they fall asleep at the wheel, if they need to get that maintenance wakefulness test in order to renew their license, they're going to stay awake the entire time, um, which is really contradictory to what you would expect to happen. Um, so I think that's definitely an area that needs a lot more work. And it's just so fascinating to me that, you know, from experience, at least, we would think that this plays a role in how we respond to sleep loss, but there really hasn't been that much done um, to look at what's happening in the brain when we're making these decisions um, and when we're actually trying to exert our will on our own sleep-wake system. Well said, and uh, you know, you definitely touched upon the need for future research there, and I think you've done an exemplary, draw, exemplary job walking our listeners through this investigation, which is extremely robust. Uh, and everyone should go onto the Sleep Journal website and find uh, the publication and read it for themselves. Thankfully, there are people like you and others out there with much uh, stronger 
cognitive capacities than myself and my puny brain that are tackling these questions that that gives me warm fuzzy feelings that we're going to have some some amazing findings in the future uh but before i let you go olga i'm going to need you to answer probably the most important question that we've thrown out there thus far are you ready for it let's do it all right dr galley if you're afforded unlimited funding to explore a singular sleep and or circadian research topic, then what would you investigate? Well, I think it's safe to say that I'm biased. I think this question of the impact of motivation on resilience to sleep loss is something that's particularly interesting to me. And my guess is that even after a week of sleep restriction, if I were to offer you a million dollars to do the PVT for 10 minutes, and to do relatively well, I think there's a good chance you would be successful. Um, so I'd be very curious to look at the role of motivation in maintaining these high levels of performance during incredibly boring tasks that we're asking these individuals to do. Um, and I realize that not for everybody is financial motivation going to be enough. Um, but there's certainly a level of financial motivation that would make it interesting. And I think the ability to maybe terminate these studies early to say, if you do well enough, I will let you go home and still get paid the entire amount that you're guaranteed, perhaps even a bonus for doing so well. Um, and you get this promise of a nice restful night of sleep. Is, is that enough to you know, convince somebody to perform really well for a very brief period of time? So I, I think... Unlimited funding would go a long way to helping out with that goal. Well, that was ingenious and slightly devious, which is some of my, you know, the combination of that is some of my favorite work in life. So uh, I just want to thank you, Dr. Galley, for finding the time to discuss this investigation and share your wisdom with our listeners. Um, Dr. Galley, uh, if the listeners do want to follow up with you after, is there a way that they can reach you? Absolutely. So I'm, I am on LinkedIn. Feel free to look me up there. And if you do read the publication, it has my email address as an author. Um, so I do welcome emails if there are any questions. Um, or you can try to find me at an upcoming sleep conference. I hope to keep attending them for the foreseeable future. Well, I hope to see you at an upcoming sleep conference. And as always, thank you, Dr. Galley. And that concludes today's episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Again, I am your host, Jesse Cook, and I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Olga Galley and hope that you did as well. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, please feel free to reach out at sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Certainly join us next time as we unpack another hot-off-the-press finding in sleep and circadian research. And until then, sleep well. The intro and outro music for this podcast was created by chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt. On behalf of the SRS, I'd like to thank Rulof for his contribution to this podcast. Thank you.